As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You know, you think, wow, I've read quite a bit. And then you look and you're like, 9%? (laughs) Whoa, I'm in a commitment now. Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 128. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. If the word biography doesn't fill you with excitement, maybe today's guest, Tracy Haddock's enthusiasm, can convince you to give them another shot. She even calls one famous biographer her adopted grandfather, although what she's really looking for today are great biographies about amazing women because she just hasn't found enough out there. In this episode, we're discussing books about extraordinary people living during fascinating times, the right time to introduce a loved one to your favorite classics, unreliable nonfiction authors, books so engrossing they've made Tracy's family fend for themselves at dinner time, and much, much more. Let's get to it. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Anne. It is such a treat to talk with you. So Tracy, as you know, what I love to hear from all our guests is what turned them into a reader? I was almost born reading. I've just been a reader since I was a kid. And I started with primers and then Nancy Drew. I remember my grandmother giving me two books and she said, all girls should read these two books. And they were Little Women and Heidi. I just thought, oh, this is the best thing, you know. How old were you when she gave you those books? I want to say I was in third grade, probably eight And I loved them both, probably read them both four or five times each. And they're just beloved to this day, both of those books. I'm glad to hear that because I would be a little afraid to give my own eight-year-old girls those books at that age. They both really loved Heidi when they were closer to 10. My 10-year-old is reading Little Women right now for the first time, and I'm a little afraid to ask her about it. I mean, I will, but... Yeah, you almost don't want to hear if they don't if if you're like oh i gave it to you too early honestly i for my own daughter she still hasn't read little women and she's 17 and i you know i gave it to her and she was maybe 9 or 10 and told her this is the book that my grandmother gave me and i love this book so much and she has not ever finished little women you know she's in a different generation she's the harry potter generation and she's read those books six times each i have to console myself with the fact that she loves to read but she just hasn't maybe discovered the gift of little women yet 
I like the way you phrase that. Yet. Not like everyone needs to love little women, but I can see how women hold out hope for their kids, at least finishing the books that meant so much to them as a child. Oh, totally. I totally hold out hope. Sometimes you don't get to those books until you're much older. Like right now, I'm finally reading Middlemarch, which I had never read before. And it's from that post that you made on your blog about the 25 books that all women should read. That has just totally inspired me. So here I am making my way through Middlemarch and really loving it and thinking, oh yeah, this is right up my alley. Should have read this 20 years ago. Well, I should have read it 20 years ago too, but I only read that one myself in the last three or four years. It's really good. And you know what? When I was reading it, I realized how many Middlemarch references in literature had gone right over my head (laughs) from modern authors like Kate Atkinson, because I didn't know, I, I didn't understand the reference. I didn't realize it was one of those books until I read it, but I didn't read it for a long time because it is really huge. I mean, I've been reading on my Kindle app. And so, you know, you think, wow, I've read quite a bit. And then you look and you're like, 9%? (laughs) Whoa, this is really long. This is, this is a commitment. I'm in a commitment now with Middlemarch. How far off the beaten path is a book like Middlemarch for you? So it's quite old. It's humongous. You know, I think since listening to your podcast, I've been more drawn to contemporary fiction. However, pre What Should I Read Next Days, I was all about the old books. I was all about the historical books, all about biographies. My favorite writer in the whole wide world is David McCullough. I feel like he's my adopted grandfather. I think your podcast and your blog has sort of turned me on to more contemporary fiction. So for now, right now, Middlemarch is really quite a throwback. So it's an area that you used to be quite at home in. You know, I think I understand what you're saying because for many years, I felt like I constantly struck out when I was reading contemporary fiction for myself. Like I just didn't know how to choose it. And I lived next door to the library when I was a young reader, figuring out what I wanted for my reading life. Now, you know, once I was out of school and I actually got to choose for myself the books that I wanted to read, I realized I didn't know how to do it. So I'd go to the library, I see what was there, and I picked stuff based on the titles and the covers and the genres. And more often than not, I'd feel like I would have been much happier if I'd just gone to the classic section because those books have stood the test of time. If they're not quite to my taste, they're at least important. And sometimes it's nice to understand the works that have had a great impact on the course of literature, even though they're not to my taste either. Oh, I just found contemporary fiction like a crapshoot. Yes, that's that's the best description of it. And then, of course, Goodreads came along and just more blogs and podcasts about reading. And now I'm like, oh, it has to be five stars. I'm like, I don't even have time for bad contemporary fiction, you know? I'm really stingy with my stars. Actually, I don't like to assign star ratings to book at all, but when I do, I am really stingy. Are you? I am more stingy than I used to be. I just think anybody writing a book is clearly superior to me. So I hate to give them a three star, but you've helped me to understand that like, it's not for you. You're not trying to say it was poorly written or the author didn't put in enough effort or anything. And so now I am more stingy with my stars. And I'm like, no, that has to speak to my soul before I'll give it a five stars, you know? And then the other ones are like, I liked it. It was fine. And that's not to denigrate the author's efforts at all. I hear you. But on Goodreads, 
I used to be stingy. And now when I do rate books on Goodreads, I'm moving the opposite direction. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Well, yes, because it's perfectly fair for you to say, I liked that book. So it's three stars. And if I'm only saving five stars for the like dozen books that changed my life, then of course those are rare. And yet so many readers will not touch a book if it has less than four stars. And as an author myself, I'm even more sensitive now since reading people came out in September to how many times, I mean, I don't read the reviews usually because it is not good for my soul, but I, people will point out to me like, Oh, did you see you got like all those one star reviews because the spine was bent when it came in the mail from Amazon or because they wished it had talked about you know, blah, 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 something else entirely, or because they haven't read it yet, but they don't like the sound of it. And I know that that kind of review goes into every single book on the internet. And that's not fair. That's painful. So I feel like I need to do my part to counterbalance the people um, knocking a book because UPS delivered it a day late. It's not the author's fault. It's almost better to just read a little review or read the little blurb or something, and then you can get a better idea. I do like some of the Goodreads reviews, but I, boy, you can really go down a rabbit hole there and be forever. (laughs) Those have been really helpful to me and um, have led me to some of my very favorites. You'll write a little blurb. You'll say, oh, this book was really hard, but the ending made up for it. And I'm like, oh, that's exactly how I felt. Like Plain Song by Kent Harif, I think. Oh, man. Yes. That book was almost, because I'm not big about grisly graphic, and there was a little bit of that, and it crossed my line, but the ending was so touching and so what you wanted. I was talking about that book this morning, and I think I described it as 192 pages of devastation in eight pages of this like quiet joy. And you couldn't have one without the other, really, but oh, man. It was a lot of terrible. Oh, but he's so good. I really like him. I haven't read any more of him. For me, if it's a little too graphic, I'm just like, ah. So yeah, I don't know if I'll read any more of him, but man, that ending was just so poignant and so sweet. I haven't read a lot by him. Our Souls at Night is much gentler, and I'd really like to keep reading the Plainsome books, but I think I have a whole lot of summer reading titles to read first. I bet. I'll get there. He seems like he'd be good to read in the fall. I agree. Elizabeth, can you remember a time that you went down the Goodreads rabbit hole? Because I am curious about that. Sometimes it's a book that you dislike and you want to see if people agree with you. Okay, I don't know if this is going to be controversial or not, but there's a little book called The Alchemist. (laughs) This is a one-star book for me. I really really dislike this book, but it had come so highly recommended by several friends. And so I think I went down a major Goodreads rabbit hole. I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. There's other people that agree with me. This book is not for them and me. I think another rabbit hole I went down was Tess of the D'Urbervilles because that book was so beautifully written and so awful to me. Oh my gosh, he is the best author, but he's treating Tess like a like a voodoo doll. He's just sticking pins in her. What will happen to her when I do this? And what will happen to her when I do this? And so I remember thinking, does anybody feel the same way about this classic novel that I feel? Or am I just crazy? And so, yes, I believe Tess of the D'Urbervilles was a big rabbit hole for me as well. What did you find out at the bottom of it? Some people feel the same way. They just 
I don't want to use the word hate, but they really dislike Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Not because, again, I mean, his writing is just amazing, but just what he did to poor Tess, you know? (laughs) So other people felt the same way. Was that validating? It really is validating. Your whole podcast, I find to be extremely validating especially when people agree with how I feel. But even when people disagree, I just love hearing people talk about books. You know, a book really is such a commitment for your soul. You can watch a movie in two hours, but a book takes five or six or seven hours to read. Somehow there's just a greater impact. To be able to listen to people talk about books they loved and books they didn't and books that are upsetting or, you know, profound is really validating. I love it. So Tracy, what does your reading life look like these days? When do you read? What do you read? So my reading life is pretty haphazard. Every night I go to bed and I I open a book and I'm a morning person. And so I am asleep after two sentences. I just, every single night this happens. (laughs) And it's kind of silly. I've found that I can read better in the afternoon, but I feel kind of guilty. Like I should be doing something productive. I should be, you know, helping somebody or doing something. But I've recently just kind of given myself permission a couple times a week in the afternoon to just read. So you'll find me reading some afternoons. If I'm reading nonfiction, I can be very disciplined about it. For some reason, nonfiction or a biography, because you know how it ends. That person dies. That's the end of the biography. (laughs) And so you can be really disciplined about that kind of reading. You, you can read just a chapter a night or whatever. When I get into some kind of riveting fiction and I have no idea how it's going to end, I'm totally a binge reader. Like dinner does not get made. Kids, we're having popcorn. Just I'm reading this book. And so I find that I have to be really careful about bringing in some kind of amazing fiction book because like the laundry's going to suffer. Things are going to suffer a little So I would say when it's fiction and it's amazing and I just, I don't know the ending, it's going to be three, four, five hours, you know, stop, check on my children and then go back to it. But nonfiction, I can be more like the tortoise in The Tortoise and the Hare. What was the last book that led to you having popcorn for dinner? Ooh, probably Amor Tolls, A Gentleman in Moscow. Mm -hmm. Yes. And oh, The Dry the Dry by Jane Harper. <laughs> I just ate that thing up. That was a great one. Sorry, I'm laughing because it's a mystery and I really wanted to know what happened next too. Yeah, it was just so plot driven. I'm like, I can't put this thing down. Rules of Civility and A Gentleman in Moscow. Those were both just really hard for me to put down at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I'm pretty disciplined with Middlemarch that I'm reading right now just because it's, well, it just takes a lot of effort and the plot is very slow building. You know, we're doing a lot of character building right now. What is this doctor like? What is what is this family like? And so it's a little easier to slow down. Are you ready to talk about your favorites? Because I would love to hear about them. Yes, let's talk about my favorites. Okay, well, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And we will talk about what you should read next. What's the first book you love? The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edmund Morris. yes. That was the first book I ever read by him. And it was a couple years ago when I was on this kick of Pulitzer Prize winning biographies. I'm like, I'm just a people person. I just want to read about people. So I'm just going to kind of work my way through these biographies. And so I started with that one and it knocked me off my socks in the first three pages. He 
He's describing, I think it's the inauguration, and it was amazing. Oh, I am strapped into this roller coaster here. This is so good. Okay, hold on. I think a lot of people right now are sitting in their seats or their cars or at their kitchen sinks thinking, really? Yeah. Tell us more about this inauguration in the opening pages of this book. What happened? And how did how did he write about it in such a way where you thought, oh my gosh, this is the best thing I've read in ages? Gosh, that's a good question. I went back and sort of read through a little bit to try to remember what hooked me so fast. He writes about it just in such particular detail about how Teddy Roosevelt, about the way he smiles, the way his teeth look, how he spends 15 seconds per handshake and shook just a huge number of people's hands. I can't even remember. It's like 4,000 people or something that he shakes their hands on Inauguration Day and he just describes everything in such great detail you feel like you're in the line about to shake Theodore Roosevelt's hand. And I thought, this is beyond what I've ever read. This was, this was amazing. Maybe part of it was that Theodore Roosevelt himself is so fascinating. He's so larger than life, almost like he's not real, except he was. You can't believe some of the details about his life. Like he drank like two liters of coffee every morning and ate 18 eggs. It's just something ridiculous. He loved to have like races with his children and he would send his children around and around the house just racing each other and he would time them and then he would keep track of their times. Like he's just this larger than life person. And so maybe it was part subject and part writer that just hooked me in so quickly. That makes me want to read about Teddy Roosevelt. I really suggest The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt. It's just so well done. There's just no boring sections. Okay, that's high praise for a biography. Tracy, what's another favorite of yours? I love Jane Austen and my favorite is Persuasion. It's just so beautiful. I love that book so much. I read Pride and Prejudice and I read Emma and probably Sense and Sensibility before I read Persuasion. And I got to Persuasion, I'm like, this is the best one. This is the best book. I love that whole redemption. I love that redemptive love. It's just wonderful. And I'm completely in agreement with you that they have not made a movie adaptation to my liking yet. I saw that one with that awkward kiss at the end. I'm like, what is that? It's so bad, right? Yeah, that one, I'm I'm still pining for a really good persuasion movie. That would make me so happy. I think we need some like somewhere between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day release put a word in somewhere to make that happen for 2020. Because there's a terrific Pride and Prejudice and a terrific Emma. They even did Love and Friendship with Kate Beckinsale and we can't get a really great persuasion. And I know some people disagree and that's fine, but I'm still waiting. I agree. I'm still waiting too. I just watched the new Emma that has the blonde because there's the Kate Beckinsale one, which is very good. And then there's one that was done in 09. Is that the one with um, Romola Garay? Yes, I thought it was fantastic. And I'd like a persuasion along those lines very much. Me too. All right. BBC, I hope you're listening. Yeah. Tracy, what else is on your list? The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. It's phenomenal. So paradigm shifting and so packed full of really interesting theories about how we develop habits, followed by awesome stories where you can see exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, I was hooked from the first couple pages when he opens with this lady and he says the scientists could not understand her because she was one of a group that they were studying of people who had totally drastically changed their entire life within a year or two. 
And then it kind of goes through her story about how she started out and she was a smoker and a compulsive gambler. She had broken relationships. She'd just gotten divorced, had run up a bunch of debt. She decides to change her life. And within a year, all of that is gone. And she's completely remade her whole life. And so all of these psychiatrists are trying to study how did she do that? People smoke their entire life and this lady quit. How, how did she do that? Right at the beginning, you're just like, yeah, how did she do that? You know, <laughs> and you just want to know. Then the subsequent chapters get into just some of the most fascinating things you've ever heard of, like how Target, the store, knows what you're buying. Oh, that was in The Power of Habit? Yes. I thought that was fascinating. I mean, I read that book and I remember about Target knowing you're pregnant, but yes. I forgot that that was Doohig. Yes, that's in that book. And it is just jaw dropping. You know, you're like, oh my gosh, they, <laughs> they can, they can tell by what you're purchasing because of, we're just habitual people and they can target the marketing right to you. It's incredible. I, I highly recommend it. It's one of the best nonfiction books I've ever read. You know, I love all of Malcolm Gladwell books. They're, they're great. And this is kind of like that. It's just so thought provoking. You can really apply it to your own life. I think about it all the time. I think that's a big compliment to a book. If I come away from it and find myself still thinking about it and still talking about it days and weeks and months later. Yeah, I think my friends and family are kind of sick of me talking about the power of habit, you know? Well, that says good things about the book and, you know, our sympathies with your friends and family. <laughs> I know. I've given it away as gifts. I'm like, can you please read this so I can talk to somebody about it? I just want yeah. somebody in my circle that has read this too. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, Tracy, when I saw what your hated book was, I was really surprised because I don't know that we've ever had a love and a hate by the same author before, but you do. I know the irony of it. The same author, Edmund Morris, who wrote The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, he wrote a biography of Ronald Reagan called Dutch. And I disliked it very, very, very much. <laughs> and there's a very specific reason for it. And it was very, it was panned when it came out. So the story behind the book is that I believe Morris had written The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt and he'd won the Pulitzer for it. And so then the Reagans, I don't know how it works if the federal government hires him, but they decided to choose Edmund Morris for the official biography of Ronald Reagan. Wait, hold on. I know about this book, but this is an official biography? I believe it was meant to be the official biography of the president, like a very official thing because he was granted access to the Reagan. He met Ronald Reagan. He was in the White House at the very end of the presidency. And then when his book came out, he put himself in as a character. Well, see, this is the part. As a fictional character. I, yeah, uh-huh. I was just completely appalled. Like, how can you do that in an, an official presidential biography? How can you write yourself into this man's life in 1930 when you didn't meet him till 1986 or whenever it was? And so basically he wrote himself in as a character, knowing Reagan as a teenager, knowing him in California, knowing him at these different places in his life. I couldn't take it. I had this sort of righteous indignation about it. Right. Because that's not a biography. It's a fascinating creative exercise, but that's not a presidential biography. Did you go down the internet rabbit hole on this book to find out if other people agreed? I did to some degree. I didn't go deep into it, but I did find enough reports of people that said, yeah, this book was widely panned when it came out because 
he inserted himself as a character in the book. He defends that because he said, it's how I can best show what kind of a person Ronald Reagan was. And because he kind of says that Ronald Reagan is a bit of a detached person. He kind of doesn't have a lot of intimate connections with people and all the world's a stage for him is sort of the impression. And so he felt justified in kind of being an observer at all of Reagan's points in his life. But that was another part of the book that bothered me was that I don't expect a biographer to be a fanboy or a fangirl. But if you could show the good and the bad about a person, that would be nice. And I felt like Dutch basically dehumanized Ronald Reagan and just really was intent on showing how detached of a person he was. And it just sort of left off some of the good stuff, you know, so that kind of bothered me, too. Well, I'm glad you know you're in good company. Like critics used words like narrative abracadabra to describe the plot device here. Well, is should there be a plot device in a biography? But they did not mean that as a compliment when they said it. And Edmund Morris is widely recognized as a highly skilled biographer. So it's not like he can't. I mean, it's fascinating. This would be an amazing book to read with your book club. And see what people thought. Yeah, it is crazy to love one of his books and really, really loathe another one of his books. Well, they're different kinds of works. They are. You know, I have another author that I love and loathe. <laughs> it's Eric Larson. I love Devil in the White City and Isaac Storm. And then the one that's about the family in Germany, and he's the ambassador. In the Garden of the Beast? I really disliked that book. To the point where I'm like, I can't believe the same guy wrote both of these. What was it about it? I haven't read that one. He bases the book on a diary of the daughter of the American ambassador to Germany. This young woman, she's in her early 20s maybe, and she kept a diary. And so I think he thought, wow, here's this primary source. Couple that with what's going on at the time. But the problem with diaries is sometimes you just quit writing and it just drops off. And that's what it did in the book. It just sort of cut out and then he sort of tried to sum up what else happened. And I was like, this was not well fleshed out. It, it just didn't feel like a complete book compared to his other books. Okay. So you want to hear the whole story? Yeah, the whole story. And the ending just really petered out. I'll try to not pick books that leave you feeling like that. Although some books, what's the one? Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. Mm -hmm. I love that ending where they end right when they, oh, this is a huge spoiler. <laughs> That's the end. I'm like, oh, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. And I don't need to hear the rest of what happens. So I don't know. I, I'm finicky, I guess. I don't know. So it should feel meaningful and not like the author got tired. Yes. And said, oh, I'm out of material. Uh, hmm. Let me just... <laughs> that's it. 75,000 words. I'm done. <laughs> right. And I, I mean, I hate to even say that because Eric Larson, oh my gosh, he's amazing. His writing, you know, Devil in the White City is just unbelievable. It just makes me think, wow, you know, even these brilliant writers can have an off book. Or these brilliant writers whose works you have really enjoyed cannot necessarily always be right for you. Because it gets published. So maybe somebody else just loves it. Fair enough. I love it when people love books I hate. I think that's fascinating. But I'd rather read books I love. And that makes it tricky sometimes, all the time. Yes. What are you reading right now? So I just finished Homegoing. By Yaa Jesse. Did you enjoy it? That was a great book. I do love those multi-generational stories. And that's a hard book. It's painful. But wow, what she did was really amazing. I thought that was a really cool, a really good book. I'm reading... 
Charles Duhigg's second book called Smarter, Faster, Better. Mm -hmm. And it's great. And it's about like how to be more productive, which I really need this book. (laughs) (laughs) I really need to get more productive in my life. And so, you know, I found a couple good hints so far. I'm maybe about halfway through. I'm listening right now to Lincoln and the Bardo. And that one has me all over emotionally. I'm like... Oh my gosh, there's a lot of salty language here. I don't know. And then, oh my gosh, this is so touching. This is amazing. So I'm maybe not quite halfway through and I'm Mm -hmm. trying to decide, do I finish it? Is it, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's your call, but I just want to whisper, yes, yes. Okay, I'll stick through it. You know how you have that saying about having like an eight line edit that you would like to have on some books? Sometimes I feel like, oh, I wish I could just have a little censor on on a couple characters, but you want to hear this is the kind of person they were, but you know, it's rough. I totally forgot about that. I didn't listen to the whole audiobook. I just listened to excerpts, but I mostly read it on Kindle, which is not the format I would recommend. I remember how it made me feel and I remember what happened and what Saunders did that was so interesting, but I completely forgot about what you're talking about. Yeah, there's a few characters that you're just like major cringe, especially this horrible, horrible slave owner who is just, he's, he's depraved really hard to listen to. So what I love about that audiobook is it's so experiential with the vast cast of characters and all the different voices, and it really makes it come alive. I can hear how you don't really want to vividly experience that character. Yeah, it is pretty brilliant. I think I'll finish upon your recommendation. I hope you're happy with that choice. On the flip side. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Tracy, when it comes to what you want to be different in your reading life, I really liked the, I don't know, what do you call it? Project goal that you set for yourself regarding biographies. I realized, oh my gosh, all the biographies I read are about men. I would really like to read some more about women. I've read a few, A Girl Named Zippy by Haven Kimmel, and that was the most charming, delightful, beloved book. I just adored it. And, you know, like A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, that's fiction, but it's it reads like a memoir. And I just, oh my goodness, I love that mm-hmm. book so much. But as far as like historical people, I can't say that I've read very many biographies of women. I started one because it, it won the Pulitzer and it was Cleopatra by Stacey Schiff. Mm-hmm. And the writing was amazing. She is just fantastic as a writer. But it turned out that Cleopatra was crazy. <laughs> like she was a crazy megalomaniac. And I'm like, I can't keep reading this. But it's funny because I still think I should go back. I should go back and finish that. Not all books do I regret not finishing, but there are some on my list. I'm like, I'm totally going back and finishing that. That's one of them. Is there a certain time period that you're interested in or a certain section of the bookstore? Like, do you really love politics or literature or adventure? What speaks to you? I have a degree in history and I taught history. So I do love history, but I do love getting outside of that as well just completely outside of that. I love like Bill Bryson. I love those books. Mm -hmm. They're so funny. Mm -hmm. I just love them. And we recently went to Peru, to Machu Picchu. And I read a delightful book on the way there called Turn Right at Machu Picchu. Oh, that's perfect. I highly recommend it. It's really funny. It's kind of like Bill Bryson in a way, um, you know, like a travel, a travel memoir. I thought it was great. And that's, that was really outside of my wheelhouse. I, I normally, I love to read, you know, historical 
nonfiction. That's why David McCullough is my very favorite. I once read some journals by Anne Morrow Lindbergh, and those were just beautiful. I loved reading about her. So that was something I loved. I love to be able to recommend a book. I love to read a book that is so good that I can't wait to recommend it. And then to hear back from that friend that's like, oh my gosh, that book was amazing. And so recently I've had two friends whom I've recommended books to. And my one friend, she just sent me a text and she's like, that was the best book I've read in my life. I'm like, yay. What was it? It was a man called Uva. She had never read it. And I was like, you've got to read this book. Uva is your husband. They are so similar. And she just loved it. She loved it so much. And then the other friend I had recommended, um, News of the World. Uh-huh. And she, I think she said she listened to it, audiobook. And she's like, I just loved it so much. There's just something so gratifying about recommending a book to somebody and they just love it. So I'm always looking for books like that. Oh, but neither of those are biographies. Do you find people, do you find your fellow readers or do you know your fellow readers who share your passion for biography and for connecting with people in the pages of literature in this way? I have found very few people that love biographies like me. Very few. My grandma that passed away, she loved biographies. She's the one that I first read David McCullough because of her. I read John Adams. She had read it. And so I read it. And then I just took off on my David McCullough for years. I have two book clubs that I'm in. And one of the book clubs, we read mostly contemporary fiction or just books that a lot of people are talking about. And I love that. And then my other book club, we read only books either about women or written by women. And that book club, we will tend a little bit toward more towards biography. And so I have a few, but that's a really small book club. There's only like four of us. Tracy, I have ideas. Are you ready? Yay. I am so ready. Okay. Let me start by sharing one of my favorite biographies. Can I do that? Yes. I would love that. Okay. Have you read Abigail Adams by Woody Holton? No, I have not. And I love her. I love Abigail Adams. Because she was a tough cookie. Oh, she was amazing. I am sorry to say that my history is perhaps not as good as it could have been. And there's really no excuse because it's not like we ran out of time in history class in any of the courses I took and we didn't cover the revolutionary era. We totally (laughs) did. I just either fell asleep or couldn't remember. But Hamilton fever has reinvigorated a lot of people's interest in that era. And also Ron Chernow's work, which takes you into many of these characters. But this book is focused on Abigail herself. So of course you do see John in the back. I mean, they're married. He like, he figures hugely in her narrative, but she was amazing. And I'm not really sure what to tell you about this to like sell it to you in the same way that like Teddy Roosevelt really hooked you in the Edmund Morris biography. But reading this, you just think what a woman, she was so intelligent and take charge and like sure of what she wanted and like went after getting it in a way that was really uncommon back then. Until I read this book, it hadn't really been brought home to me what rights she didn't have because she was female in 18th century America. And then just reading about Abigail and her family and her husband, like when John chooses to get vaccinated for smallpox, like it is a dangerous ordeal where you're like taking a gamble that you will not die so that you can be safe for the rest of your life. Uh, Just reading about making such a difficult choice. I had no idea about the little details like that. And there's so many questions of property. And then of course there's wartime. So she's a woman who is important as a political figure because of her husband being the second president, but 
also you get such an interesting glimpse uh, because of letters between her and her husband and her family members about her friendships and her marriage. And it's just so fascinating. There's two parts like, oh my gosh, she, I have so much in common with Abigail Adams and a little bit of, oh my, it was different then. And I don't think one experience would be as interesting without the other with a woman like that. Really, I just want to say, oh, read it. If you love biography, please read it. You do not even have to sell me on that. I was not even aware that there was a really a, a good biography written of Abigail Adams. I'm going to go get this book like today. I went to visit, you know, the Adams family, the homestead or whatever in Quincy, Massachusetts a couple years ago. I'm the same way as you. I love this woman. She is amazing. Just her strength. I mean, she was alone so much because John Adams was in France for so many years. She's raising these children. She's keeping everything together. She's amazing. I really can't wait to read this. I can't wait to hear what you think. Yay. Okay. So I'm thinking perhaps literature. Sure. Okay. Well, first of all, considering the current kick you're on, so you love Jane Austen. Yes. You're currently reading Middlemarch. Yes. Elizabeth the Gaskell is right in that circle. And <gasps> she wrote the biography on Charlotte Bronte. Have you read it? No. So I've read a little bit of North and South, and then I gave up reading it and watched the delightful BBC. Because I think that's better. Yeah, I'm with you. But I did not know she wrote a biography of Charlotte Bronte. Yes, she did. This is the book that gets credited with making the Brontes the Brontes. Like this is the oh. biography that made them cultural icons. And The Guardian has called this one of the 100 best nonfiction books of all time. And I know you care about stuff like that. I do care. And I have read that Guardian list. And somehow this that book just completely went right over my head. I never noticed that. Well, that's why we're talking. This is so great. Thank you. I love this. I will be all over this. I'm typing it in my, my to-be-read list right now. This is great. Tracy, what do you know about Zora Neale Hurston? Oh, I just read um, Their Eyes Were Watching God. I've read it twice. The first time I read it, I thought, oh, I, li I liked it. Mm -hmm. The second time I read it, I reread it for my book club, and then I loved it. It was like talking about it made it even better. Maybe I was too young or maybe just having a guide to point some things out to you really increases your appreciation of the book. I didn't realize how much Hurston herself had in common with her protagonist in Their Eyes Were Watching God. Like she was married three times, her life in the Everglades at a certain point. There's a really interesting biography about Hurston. It's by Valerie Boyd. It's called Wrapped in Rainbows. Is this a title you're familiar with? No, I've never heard of it. Okay. What's so interesting about it is that Hurston wrote her own autobiography that has been called basically a novel. It's a fictionalized version of her life. And okay. part of that is the actions that Hurston herself took throughout her life. It's been said that she often made up the story of her own life as she lived it. And if there were parts of it that didn't suit her in the current moment, she would just change it. And that, that <laughs> sounds, I think that sounds worse than it is. She wanted to enroll in school at a certain point, so she lied about her age. Sometimes she lied because the truth might not have gone down so well. Like she was 48 when she married her second husband when he was 23. So she just made herself about 20 years younger wow. at the time <laughs> so that that wouldn't be quite so scandalous. Sure. But those, you know, quote unquote facts that she embellished are in fact in her autobiography or it's called her autobiography, Dust Tracks on the Road. In this book, Wrapped in Rainbows, 
Boyd tries really hard to discover what actually happened in her life. And Hurston's life could totally have been a novel that did not need any embellishment. And if you, especially if you really enjoyed Their Eyes Were Watching God, I think you may find this fascinating reading in of a different era than we've talked about so far today. That sounds great. I love that thought that he's like, well, let's look at some of the primary documents and then we can see, actually, <laughs> according to the census, she was this old, you know. Oh, clearly, you know your way around a good biography. I love genealogy. I love Ancestry.com. And, and so I love to look at that kind of stuff and and just think about people's lives from what you can read on a census. You know, that just fascinates me. So a biography that was like, hey, let's kind of look at what really happened would totally fascinate me. And yet I assume that he still has a great deal of sympathy and love for Zora Neale Hurston. You can uncover some skeletons, but show me some love too. Okay. Speaking of love, I'm going to leave you with a novel. Oh, great. Here's the background story. 20 years ago, the author goes into the stacks of the library because she needs to write her next paper for United States women's history. So she's just looking for any women with an interesting enough life to write about who lived in the 1800s. Okay. And she said she really wanted to find a diary, but instead she found a collection of letters. And these letters were from a woman who was born in the 1840s. She was the oldest of nine children. She worked on her father's farm. The family was poor. Okay. And so when she was of age, she wanted to leave the family farm to find work. And she found out if she dressed as a man, as many women were doing, she could get work on a canal boat at a much better rate than she could get anywhere else in a traditional woman's job. Wow. And then she found out if she became a soldier for the New York State volunteers, she could get better than any job available to her right now. So the author, Erin Lindsay McCabe, found out that there were many, many women like her. And the more she got into it, the more she discovered that there were hundreds, if not thousands of these women and their stories had not been told. And that was the inspiration for her novel, I Shall Be Near to You. So this is a novel about a woman inspired by the person I just told you about who can't stand to be parted from her husband when he goes off to fight in the Civil War. So she dresses as a man and goes with him. This is a novel, but this happened. Hundreds of women fought in the Civil War on both sides. And the author's inspiration was that this was common. And how does nobody know? It's such a compelling story. So this is her novelization of these little known events in very well-known uh, Civil War battles. How does that sound to you? Oh, that sounds perfect. I am so excited to read this book. You've just hit so many little little buttons for me with that one. I love a story about like, nobody knows about this. This is incredible. And a story about a woman doing something completely outside of what's normal at that time. And then the story of how it got written. I love that too. I love it all. This sounds fantastic. I'm so glad. It is a war story, but it is gracefully and gently told. Okay. Bad things happen, but it is not grisly in the telling. I just want you to know that. Okay. I've never heard of this book, so this is so exciting. I'm so glad. Tracy, we've covered a lot of ground. Of those books, what do you think you'll read next? You know, I think I'm going to go with the one that you just spoke of, I Shall Be Near to You. I'm going to read that one first. And then I think I'll read Charlotte Bronte because I'm in the middle of middle March, so that feels good. And then I'll read the Abigail Adams. I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks for talking books with me today. Thank you so much, Anne. This was such a treat. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tracy today. 
head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Tracy and let her know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at what should I read next podcast.com slash 128. That's 128. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Vogel. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Vogel and at What Should I Read Next. And Instagram users, don't miss out on our 12 Days of Bookstagram Challenge going on right now. For more information, visit my account at Ann Vogel. Stay tuned to all the latest happenings by signing up for our free newsletter. Go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to put yourself on the list. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! <laughs>